What's up, guys? Max here with another episode of the Scuttlebutt Show. Ah, oh, I'm so bummed. I just realized I left my water outside sitting on the kitchen counter, but that's okay. I, uh, I think I'm hydrated enough. I think I'm going to be able to speak through the microphone for the entire length of the show. Welcome. It's Friday out here in Okinawa, Japan, so happy Thursday, the penultimate day of the work week. Uh, I hope you guys are having a good one and you have an exciting weekend coming up. Uh, let me know what your plans are. I've got... Uh, some plans. My marriage anniversary. My is that right? The wedding wedding anniversary, marriage anniversary. Uh, hopefully, my wife's not listening. Anyway, it's our anniversary on Saturday. Hopefully, we'll be doing something fun. It is raining here in Okinawa. First off, I gotta get something out of the way. So let's start off with our our usual but brand new way to start the show, which is about yesterday. So about yesterday, uh, another sign off issue. Another issue with me getting cut off at the end of the show. But I have a plan. Today, it, I'm calling it, today it's not going to happen. Today, it's going to be a good sign-off. You guys will hear the end of my, of my statement, of my, of my sign-out for maybe the first time ever. Um, and another fun thing about today's episode is it's going to be our 100th upload to the podcast. It's going to be episode 100 on the podcast today, which uh, obviously the show you know has been around for uh, a little over three years, and we're coming up on our, this is going to be our 100th upload, and that's because we were doing, you know, every Friday for a long time. Then there was a break in the show. Then there was uh, every time we had a guest, which would maybe be two times a week, one time a week, maybe a week without a guest. But now we're doing Sunday through Thursday. So obviously there's been like 50 episodes since I've started this uh, format and we're going to keep it going. So by the end of next year, there should be 300 episodes on there or more. So uh, I like it. If you guys like it, you know, let me know. Congratulations to the whole show and the listeners and the community that we've created on our 100th upload to the podcast today. We have some cool stories. Uh, there's nothing, you know, I'm going to be upfront with you. There's nothing life-changing in today's show. Uh, yesterday was insane. We had a really crazy one yesterday. I've been talking, trying to get some guests on, maybe get TMR, the Marine rapper on. We do have uh, some regulation changes in the Air Force, which is a, a follow-up to a story that we covered a few weeks ago. We've got a Navy commander getting relieved, and we're going to talk about a little bit of Navy reserves. We're going to cover some obituaries. You know, I told you guys I would keep doing the obituaries if you liked it. There, and, you know, it's not like we're not celebrating that we have more obituaries, but I think it's good that we get to honor some really, really cool veterans uh, in the form of acknowledging um, them th through their their life, their service, and, uh, and how, you know, much they were able to dedicate to their communities and the world post-military service. We've got um, our final story of today is going to be the Army using this very, very futuristic, very cool weapon technology that we're going to talk about that's going to be implemented soon. This isn't some like experimental, you know, exhibited uh, expo type thing. We're going to talk about something that the Army's really going to start using and uh, another aviation mishap and more. So I don't want to waste any more time because we have a lot to get through today. So I want to get right into the first story of today, which is... Uh, Navy commander out of Tennessee is fired after investigation. So this is from uh, Stars and Stripes here. So we've got a Navy commander, which is an 05 uh, in the military. He's an 06, uh, 06, but, you know, they call everybody in the military commander. So, or everybody in the Navy who's a skipper, you know, is called commander or skipper. So the commander of a Tennessee-based Naval Center was fired on Wednesday after a command investigation into a complaint, the Navy said. Captain Scott Moss, the commanding officer of Naval Operational Support Center in Knoxville. Now, by the way, a Navy Operational Support Center, otherwise known as a NOSC, is responsible for handling all of the, you know, reserve units, reserve personnel um, as they come through and go on to their active duty orders. If they have issues while they're on um, reserve you know, not on reserve duty or when they're trying to pick orders or get a deployment, they go through their NOSC. So this is, we're talking about a NOSC, Navy Operational Support Center. He was relieved due to a loss of confidence in his ability to command and uh, commander of Navy Region Southeast, Reserve Component Command Jacksonville, Florida, uh, released that statement. So there was some kind of investigation following an inspector general complaint, so an IG complaint. Um, a spokesman for the Navy Reserve said, while the investigation is complete, Tisdale stated he could not provide more details. So we don't really know a lot about this. He had only been in command since September, and the sports center is responsible for the readiness of reserve sailors, like I was saying. Um, he's been reassigned. Uh, they have his background on here. But, and he, uh, you know, he served in the Navy for some number of years. Not much there to that story. I just thought it was interesting. I thought I would use this opportunity to, like, kind of explain to you how the reserve component works with a NOSC. So, you can be stationed at a NOSC and be like admin where you work a normal, like you're in the Navy, you work in the Navy, but your job is to support reserve personnel. So 
the Navy reserves, right? One weekend a month, two weeks a year, as we might know it, but that's not necessarily the case. You can be in the reserves and go on active duty orders for, you know, up to, uh, I think three months at a time. So you can do three months. You're just in the, in the Navy for three months and then you get out and you can reschedule your one weekend. You can make that a couple days anywhere. You can skip a, skip a month of your weekend and then do two in a row consecutive the following month or something like that. You can use leave. Um, so there's all this stuff that you can do. The NOSC is responsible for all that. So if you're thinking about the Navy reserves and you're thinking, oh, it's one week in a month, two weeks a year, and that's the, you know, the end all be all of it. There's a lot more to it than that. And uh, I'm happy to share some more information with that. Wait, where am I looking? And I'm happy to share some more information uh, about that with you guys. If you're ever interested in knowing more about the Navy reserve component, I've got some buddies who are in the Navy reserves who worked that, uh, reserve active duty orders angle. Another thing about the reserves is so many deployments. The reserves do so many deployments. They are uh, constantly cycling in and out of deployment. Um, And you can have a cool benefit in the reserves, which is after you do a deployment, you have a mandatory downtime of like three years, but you can waive that and you can just go ahead and do back-to-back deployments if you want to. So reserves is a really flexible, really good way to go. The main problem with the reserves is no retirement. So you're not going to get the normal pension that the military gets. So after 20 years, you're not going to get, you know, a paycheck every two weeks for, uh, for the rest of your life. You're going to have to wait until you're, you know, 65 years old, eligible for retirement. Then it's based off of how much active duty time and deployments you did and all that stuff. So reserve downside retirement and benefits upside flexible schedule, uh, ability to kind of determine your own fate in the Navy, so to speak. So I thought that was kind of fun. Now, look, we did the, uh, we did the obituaries. I believe that was last week. And uh, by the way, what's up the blue line? What's up to Justin in the chat? Thanks for stopping by guys. Now I, uh, I did tell you guys that, um, I was going to keep doing the obituaries thing. Justin says, do they ever do old school, uh, pension retirement anymore? Um, they have the blended retirement system, which is the, uh, is the new one. And I don't think that they do have the old school pension anymore. Um, so you can get into the blended one now, but that's only very, very recently. So you have to be like joining boot camp now to be, you know, in the blended retirement. Uh, even if you were in just a couple years ago, you still are eligible for the 20 year. And I think there is something, let me double check on this. Let me ask some of my friends who are in the Navy now what the deal is with the 20 year pension. Cause it did change the blended retirement system now where you get some pension, some, uh, like 401k type stuff. And, uh, I, I can look up some more info on that if you guys are interested. Um, especially if you're thinking about joining the Navy or, or just want to know how that works. Um, and then if you were in the Navy and you joined under the pension system, that's totally still, you still get that. They didn't take that away from anybody. So the, uh, obituaries thing, um, we did the obituaries last week. I thought it was really good. I really liked doing it and I wanted to keep doing it. I asked you guys, if you wanted to keep doing it, you said, yes. So we do have uh, some more obituaries this week. I realize we're going backwards a little bit because I realized there was a bunch more from January that uh, I hadn't covered. So I was going to go back and cover January and then keep doing these kind of as they come up because every time I do these, obi- like go through and read the obituaries and think, should I cover this on the show? I'm always like, holy smokes. I can't believe, uh, you know, we don't know more about these veterans from World War II, Korea generation and what they did post-service and all these people and their accomplishments. And we have no idea that they were ever veterans. So this is a cool thing to cover. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, starting with this gentleman here, member of fame, Tuskegee airman dies at 100 years old, unfortunately from coronavirus. So Ted Lumpkin, um, you can see he was an intelligence officer with the Tuskegee airmen of world war II, uh, which I would love to just talk a whole episode about them. If you guys are interested in that. So Theodore Ted Lumpkin Jr., a member of the Tuskegee Airmen who served as a member of the all black unit during World War II, helped desegregate the U.S. military. He has died at 100 years old. Lumpkin, a native of Angelino, died of COVID-19. Man, that sucks. That's unfortunate. Um, a native of Angelino died of COVID-19 on December 26th at a hospital just days shy of his 101st birthday, said his son, Ted Lumpkin III. We're carrying on his legacy, but it's the end of an era. Lumpkin lived a full life. He was drafted into the military in 1942 when he was a 21-year-old student at UCLA. While he was in college, 
drafted into World War II and sent to the Tuskegee Airmen. He was assigned to the 100th Fighter Squadron of the All Black Unit in Tuskegee, Alabama as a second lieutenant with the U.S. Army Air Force, which would later become the Air Force. He said his eyes weren't good enough to become a pilot, so he served as an intelligence officer briefing pilots about missions during his overseas combat tour in Italy. During his tenure in the military, he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from USC. He met his wife, Georgia, while he was a student and got married soon after. Years later, he retired from the Air Force Reserves as a lieutenant colonel. That's awesome. He started a new era of his life working for the Los Angeles County, serving again as a social worker, among other jobs, for 32 years. Shifted gears again later in life, becoming a real estate broker and opening his own real estate company. What a what a hard charger. Although Lumpkin played a role in changing the military's culture, his family knew that he served during World War II, not that he was one of the fabled Tuskegee Airmen. Interesting. He didn't talk about it much. He maybe mentioned some incident or a buddy, but we were married for a number of years until I heard about them. I wonder why. When I realized who these guys were and what they had done, I was just overcome at how much they had persevered. They did not bow down. They achieved things that detractors said they wouldn't or couldn't, weren't capable of doing. Lumpkin's son said that when he was young, he was watching the television show, That's Incredible, when the announcer introduced members of the Tuskegee Airmen. Who the heck are these guys? Then there's my dad walking on stage, he said. He never talked about it, but from there it took a lot, it took off like wildfire. Wow, what a cool way to find out. Interesting. The Tuskegee Airmen received the highest civilian recognition in 2007 with the Congressional Gold Medal. Nearly two le- years later, then-President Obama invited the surviving squadron members, including Lumpkin, to his inauguration. Wow. Now only eight original Tuskegee combat pilots and several support personnel are still alive, said Rick Singfield of the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated. All are in their 90s or older. That's a generation that is going to be... Uh, the whole World War II generation is going to be um, have departed us in the next you know decade or so, probably, which is wild to think about. Lumpkin traveled frequently across the nation and abroad with Tuskegee Airmen Inc. He served as president of the Los Angeles chapter, a national board member, and a Western regional representative. He was also a board member with Tuskegee Airmen Scholarship Foundation. During presentations alongside other colleagues, Lumpkin often encouraged people, encouraged people to do their best every day to overcome what he described as their own Tuskegee experience. Well... So this guy was a hero in World War II. He went on to be a hero in his community and continue to represent for veterans and for the Tuskegee Airmen community and for the uh, maybe more disenfranchised minority communities who feel like they have been left behind and he was out there doing his part to make the world a better place. And so I just wanted to take the time to honor him and his service. So Theodore Ted Lumpkin Jr. of the Tuskegee Airmen was our first... Uh, our first obituary of today. And the next two are um, so good for him and good, you know, I shout out to his family. Rachel, what's up? Welcome to the chat. I hope their family's doing well. A hundred years, you know. One thing I was thinking about these obituaries as we're covering them is, uh, you know, I'm going to be 36 years old this year. And as I've, you know, grown up and people around me have started to get older, 40s, 50s, you know, the longer you live in life, the more uh, people you see pass away as just a fact of life. And, you know, when you're young, you just think, oh, you know, I'll probably live to be 80. You know, I'll probably live to be 70, 80, 90 years old. Um, But growing old is not guaranteed. That's what I've learned. Um, Growing old is not guaranteed. It's not a gimme. 70, 80 years is not a gimme. So I hope, you know, for everyone listening, I hope we all get very full lives, but not to take any time for granted. Um, I've seen, I've seen a lot of things in the last few years that have made me realize that growing old, becoming 100 years old, 90 years old, it's not a gimme. It's not a free pass. Um, so make sure you cherish the time that you have, cherish the time with your families while they're here that you can uh, see them. And um, and I, I guess that's what I wanted to say here since we're covering the obituaries. There's, uh, there's, this, other, um, there's this other obituary uh, that came up that I'm going to cover next. And I was like, this guy is a veteran. This guy was in the military. Um, let me switch over here really quick uh, to my, I'm going to turn off the, the safari here and look at this. Does this look familiar to anybody? What you're seeing on your screen right now, if you're listening on the podcast, is a yellow coffee cup with a smiley face on it. It says, have a happy day. Does this smiley face or likeness resemblance look familiar to you guys? Have you ever seen this anywhere? Well, check this out. Okay. This is interesting. So Bernard Spain, army veteran and retail entrepreneur held the copyright for the smiley face. So the guy who 
invented this smiley face logo. He was an army veteran. Okay, so check this out. Bernard Spain, 86 years old, successful retailer who founded a popular card shop, held the copyright for the iconic smiley face and launched the Dollar Express chain that grew to more than 100 stores and died Wednesday of congestive heart failure at his home in Philadelphia. Now, this article was published January 8th, so that would have been two Wednesdays ago. I wonder, is this um, is this the where Forrest Gump got their inspiration from? I think I might, now that I read this, I think I might remember that uh, when Forrest Gump does the uh, the face thing and he says shit happens or whatever. Uh, I, I remember that is like loosely based off a real person. I wonder if it's this person. So a lifelong Philadelphia resident, Mr. Spain and his brother Murray sold 50 million buttons with the yellow smiley face. 50 million buttons? Even if they were 10 cents each, you're talking this guy made a fortune off of that smiley face. No idea is too small. Okay, no idea is too small. If you're out there and you have an idea for something, go go for it. Mr. Spain added the slogan, have a happy day, and copyrighted the revised mark, which he printed and sold on pins and countless other products. From posters to pajamas, and according to Smithsonian Magazine, he later gave Walmart permission to use the mark. So, yep, Walmart. So the retailer could resolve a legal challenge in Europe. Interesting. Taking on Europe once again. He was able to take on Europe once again after the army by helping Walmart infiltrate the behind the lines, behind enemy lines. So he was always ahead of the, the curve. His daughter, Dana Spain of Philadelphia said he was always looking at what the appetite of the American consumer was looking for. Somehow he was always on that horizon, always on that cutting edge. The smiley face, uh, maybe Mr. Spain's most recognizable success, but he also grew two retail chains that each operated in multiple States. He founded Spain's cards and gifts in 1960 first store in Cheltenham shopping center. Uh, the corner store sold gift cards, candy, novelties, and ended up with 30 locations and became the largest Hallmark card chain on the East Coast. Mr. Spain later founded the Dollar Express in 1990, and along with his brother, grew the company to 106 stores and $200 million in annual revenue, according to Temple's Fox School of Business. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. That's awesome. So he made a fortune. Launched near the dawn of the dollar store industry, Mr. Spain's Dollar Express offered a wide breadth of products, a wider breadth of products than its rivals, including... And groceries and seasonal items that cost more than a buck. Yeah. I mean, you ever go to a dollar store and you just buy a bunch of stuff and you're like, ah, oh, it's all a dollar each and someone's like $8, $4 and you're like, mm-hmm. false advertising. So he was the son of Russian immigrants. Mr. Spain was born in Philadelphia on November 6, 1934 to Harry and Molly Spain. He grew up in the city's Strawberry Mansion neighborhood, graduate, that sounds affluent to me. If I don't know how that sounds to you guys, graduated from Central High School in 1952 in Temple four years later before serving in the Army. According to his family, he married Joan Feldman in 1962 and six months after meeting her, and they were married for nearly 59 years. Wow. He uh, passed away at his home in Society Hill. Um, he is survived by his wife, Joan, daughter, Debbie Kelly, and two grandchildren, Brian and Megan Kelly. So I thought that was super interesting. So yeah, Justin, you're right. Uh, Walmart. Yeah, for he made... Uh, he made Quite a bit of money off of a smiley face. So if you guys are out there with uh, an idea, I've had a few ideas. I've had a few ideas. I never made them. Um, maybe one day I'll tell you guys about my, my inventions that I made. It's kind of a funny story. I got to get my wife on the show and uh, we'll laugh about one of my ideas that um, I came up with when we first started dating. I was like, we were just dating and I'm like, I just came up with a billion dollar idea. And then I told her what it was and she laughed at me. And so maybe it wasn't such a billion dollar idea. I made a prototype and it was pretty cool. I'll tell you guys about it another time. So we have one more um, obituary to cover. And this one was, you know, I keep finding myself, you know, when I look at these obituaries, I'm like, holy smokes, holy smokes. Look at who were, look at who was a veteran and what they went on to go do. And we never knew Tommy Lasorda, Hall of Fame Dodgers manager, dies in 93. Tommy Lasorda of baseball fame. Growing more and more frail, Tommy Lasorda looked on from a suite at Globe Life Field in Texas watching the Los Angeles Dodgers clinch the World Series in Game 6 against the Tampa Bay Rays. Surrounded by family and friends, Lasorda celebrated the team's first championship in 32 years that October evening amid the coronavirus pandemic. While his mobility was slowed, his mind was still sharp. Fittingly, it was the last game he ever attended. Good for him. Good for him. He said he always wanted two things, to live to be 100 and to see another championship brought to the city of L.A. Dodgers third baseman Justin Turner tweeted, Although he fought like hell to hit triple digits, I couldn't be more proud to know he got to see the Dodgers on top again where he knew he belonged. So he died of a, uh, of a heart attack when he, he was 93 years old, and he's had heart issues for a long time. He had, a heart, uh, he had heart surgery, um, and he had a pacemaker. It led to his early retirement. 
and he was an army veteran. And um, I found, let's see, I found his army service over here. So his, uh, he, he was in the army for three years. And while he was in the army, he served at a, during World War II at a base in the United States. And I think that's because, um, I think that's because he uh, was famous. He was already a baseball player. So he was already a baseball player before the army. And then he ended up going into the military. And I'm sorry, I'm just scrolling through my uh, my article here because I had it pulled up and I, and I blew it. I, I've scrolled away from the right spot. So he, uh, he served on a base during World War II. It doesn't say anything about him deploying or anything because that was common for famous uh, celebrities who were in the military. He missed the 1946 and 1947 baseball seasons while serving in the army. Um, so they had these, these, uh, like Elvis is another famous one who served in the military. Uh, but they tried to protect celebrities from getting into much danger because they didn't want to have that high profile, uh, death. I'm sure it was a PR thing. So if famous people served in the military, they, um, they did not get to go necessarily right to the front lines, um, in all cases, unless they were, uh, really motivated to, I think there are some instances of some celebrities joined the military and did go to combat. Um, I think we've actually talked about a couple on the show before he, uh, he had a, um, wife. He was married for 70 years. The couple lived in the same modest home in Fullerton, California for 68 years. They have a daughter, Laura and a granddaughter, Emily, their oldest son, Tom, this is just interesting side fact died in 1991 of AIDS. So, uh, just another example of the AIDS, um, pandemic of the eighties and nineties, um, and how it affected so many people and families out there. No one was, uh, immune from, uh, being affected by some, someone that they knew or someone in their social circle or themselves was probably affected by the, uh, the AIDS crisis. So downtown dang for a smiley face. Yep. Scotty. Hey, what's up guys? What's up, Scotty? Um, welcome everybody. I'm glad, glad to have you all here. Everybody's in the chat right now. Uh, it is, um, Friday out here in Okinawa, Japan. And, um, so we just covered the, uh, the, um, obituaries. So that's the obituaries that I had to talk about today. I am pretty sure, like I said, I'm pretty sure the show is going to end with my sign out. Uh, somebody texted me yesterday, a couple people, actually one person texted me and said, Hey, just a heads up you, your stream cut out just as you were talking about your stream cutting out. And I was like, great. Okay. I got it. I got to get this figured out. I, I'm going to get it dialed in. We're going to get there. Um, you might notice my background looking a little bit different over the next few days as I kind of move things around. We're going to be doing a whole studio revamp, uh, in the next, within the next few weeks, depends on how long the mail takes to get out here. You know, the mail takes a long time to get out to Japan, depending on how long that takes. I'm going to be doing a complete studio revamp and I will stream that uh, so if you guys are interested in hanging out with me while I revamped the studio and seeing it behind the scenes, um, you can go ahead and check that out. And starting next week or late or, or this weekend, there's going to be special content on the Patreon only. So if you guys haven't signed up for Patreon yet, head over to the top link in the description down below, check out Patreon and become a supporter over there. If that's something you're interested in, shout out to Rachel and Justin who are patrons, um, who are coming up on their one month mark, which means at the start of their uh, second month, I'm going to be sending you guys out a free t-shirt. I'll be emailing you to get your shirt sizes and address info so I can send you out a t-shirt. So thank you for your support. Um, there, there's, uh, a couple, um, aviation mishaps we got to talk about today. A couple aviation mishaps. I hate talking about these, you know, cause I, I've, you know, and, and other people in the chat room right now have lost people to aviation mishaps. We've lost friends, um, in helo crashes and aircraft crashes and in, uh, you know, in helo, I mean, honestly, in helo crash, we lose a lot of people in helo crashes. Uh, if you've worked in the military in helicopters, I'm going to say you probably know somebody who was in an aviation mishap, um, or you were, and we have an aviation helo mishap to talk about here in a second. But first there was a, uh, uh, a result of an investigation into why a plane crashed in Afghanistan last year. And I want to kind of talk about that. Um, it's an interesting story and I feel like there's probably some lessons learned here. We can kind of talk about how crazy, um, how crazy, uh, it would be to be in a crashing aircraft. Okay. And how chaotic that would be and about the kind of training that goes into these things. So maybe I can educate you guys a little bit on a, or, and maybe some people in the chat can back me up on what kind of training goes into, uh, handling an aviation mishap. I Peppy, what's up? What's up to you? Thanks for joining us in the chat. So let me switch over here. And this is a, this is a story from about a year ago. Uh, maybe a little over. So, and so, 
um, let's let's talk about this really quick. Broken fan blade, shutdown of wrong engine led to fatal E11 crash in Afghanistan. So this is a, we're talking about a, a bunch of things going wrong. They start stacking up. We've got that Swiss cheese model effect starting to happen. A broken fan blade that led to engine failure followed by the pilot's shutoff of the other engine led to the fatal crash of a Bombardier Echo 11 Alpha aircraft communications aircraft in Afghanistan last January, according to an accident investigation report released Thursday. So if you look here, uh, if you're listening on the podcast, we've got the photos of the two service members who were killed. So we've got Lieutenant Colonel Paul Voss on the left and Captain Ryan Fanoof, Fanoof. For those tuning in to watch me read names, were killed January 27, 2020 in the crash of their uh, battlefield communications aircraft in Ghazni province, Afghanistan. Ghazni province, where I did do an entire deployment uh, six months out there in Ghazni province, Golan district. Um, so I've been there. I know what that area is like. Uh, so as we read this article, if I have anything relevant to add, I will. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Voss, and Cap- who 46 years old, and Captain Ryan Fanuf, 30 years old, died while trying to conduct, conduct an emergency landing of their damaged and gliding Echo 11 Alpha aircraft in a field in Ghazni province on January 27, 2020. One thing I'll just say right off the bat is much of Ghazni province is flat. Um, flat terrain. We're going to talk more about what I mean by flat terrain coming up, but it's not necessarily the most rugged and mountainous uh, terrain in Afghanistan. It's in the southeastern uh, portion of the country. While the broken fan blade and subsequent engine failure sparked the emergency, the Air Combat Command investigation concluded the crash was caused by the air crew erroneously identifying which engine had failed. So that means they had an engine failure, but they couldn't tell which engine failed, and we're going to get into why. As a result, Voss and Fanuf shut off the wrong engine, leaving the aircraft without any operating engines and producing thrust and creating a dual engine out emergency. So no thrust, no engines, no ability to in-air restart the engines. This is a horrible situation. I mean, it's... This, like, broke my heart when I read it because I'm thinking, imagine the moment that they realize what's happening in the aircraft that they just shut off the wrong engine. It's, ah, man, I can't even... I get the chills thinking about it. The crew's failure to restart the correct engine in the air and their attempt to return to Kandahar Air Base substantially contributed to the mishap. Voss and Fanuf took off from Kandahar at about 11.05 a.m. local time that day to conduct both a mission qualification training flight for Fanuf and a combat sortie to support Operation Freedom Sentinel, which is uh, what they're calling some of the stuff out there in Afghanistan right now regarding ISIS. So they were to serve as a battlefield airborne communications node, which is sometimes nicknamed Wi-Fi in the sky, to allow troops using different comm systems both in the air and on the ground to share and relay voice, video, images, and data. This aircraft's relay capability is especially important in Afghanistan, where the mountainous terrain can sometimes disrupt communication signals. Um, all the time. Signals, radio signals are really tough in Afghanistan. Um, having that node in the sky overhead, if you think of the you know propagation of... RF com communications. Uh, if you put something in between you and the receiver, you're going to have problems, but almost everybody can always look up, right? So if you've got something up and you get that angle high enough and that one thing can relay communications to everybody else, that's a great way to um, improve comms. The flight proceeded uneventfully for about an hour and 45 minutes until a fan blade in the left engine broke free, causing major damage to the engine and its automatic shutdown. So the engine shut down automatically. The cockpit voice recorder captured the loud bang of the fan blades breaking, but stopped recording after that for the rest of the flight. Interesting. I wonder why that was. Because the warning signal did not immediately light up for the catastrophically damaged engine, it took several seconds for its RPMs to drop below the point that would have triggered the signal. The crew didn't immediately know which engine had blown. So there's there's just all kinds of stuff going wrong. So they have a fan blade break. It fods out the engine or foreign object damages the engine. Um, for those with an aviation background, you would know what that is. Then, for some reason, their their warnings aren't triggered, so they don't get the warning. Then when they finally do realize something's wrong, they don't have the indicator of which engine is out, and they end up turning off the other one, which is horrifying. The pilots thought the right engine had experienced the emergency, leading them to shut shut down the right one instead of the left one. The shutdown meant the plane now had no engines operating, and all of this happened relatively quickly, about 24 seconds after the fan blade broke. The pilots issued a mayday call reporting their engine failure and said they hoped to turn back and glide to Kandahar 230 miles away. Now, all aircrafts have a glide ratio, right? The glide ratio is how far forward over how much distance down, right? So let's say the aircraft is going to go 20 feet forward 
every foot that it drops. All right. So I know you're thinking 230 nautical miles away. How's an aircraft going to glide that far? Well, let's do some quick mental math, uh, which I'm probably going to humiliate myself. If you're going to go 20 feet forward for every foot that you go down at an optimal glide ratio, 20 to one, and you're 30,000 feet up. Okay. That means you would glide 600,000 feet, which is over 100, 120 miles. So I don't know how high up they were, but if you just think about that, 20 to one would give you uh, 120 miles of glide, meaning they could probably get pretty far. Now, the, the things you have to consider, wind is a major factor. So are they going to be flying into a headwind or a tailwind? Um, what's the air density like? So what's the temperature out that day? There are all these other factors that are going to affect the glide ratio. So they had to make a decision and they decided that they would try to glide to Kandahar. And they tried to restart the left engine to get some usable thrust, believing that it was the undamaged one, but they were unable to. The report said the data showed the right engine switch was not moved back to the on position. Oh, man. They didn't know. They didn't know what they were. The report says if they tried to restart the right engine, they likely would have been able to. They didn't know. This is crazy. This is so crazy. They didn't know. And so they're in there, man, it just goes to show you the, the chaos of, even though this happened over a long period of time, the chaos that they were experiencing in the cockpit led them to not take that, you know, not take that third party look, like look at yourself from the third person perspective and go, what's causing our problem here? Why is our engine not restarting? Maybe we need to try the other engine. You know, they never thought, they never had come up with that. And for some reason, they were confident that the right engine was the one that was out. This is insane. I don't know why this is like so hard for me to read, but it's just like, I'm just, they, they didn't know. And they probably never, they didn't know. So the plane was by that point a glider and they had no shot at gliding all the way to Kandahar. Yeah, they would have had to have been 80,000 feet up probably. The crew had few options left. And then another thing is without engines, I don't know if they had like an, auxiliary power unit on board that aircraft that's providing some uh, electrical power, but the electrical systems on the aircraft aren't going to last forever without engines either because usually the generators are powered by the engine. So you're only going to get so long in the sky. The crew had few options left. Other potential landing sites such as Bagram Airfield, Kabul International Airport, and forward operating base Shank were also beyond reach. Now, this is interesting to me because Shank is not far. Shank's in Ghazni. So Shank would have not been far from where they were in my mind, but then again, I don't know. So the pilots turned towards Fab Sharana, but didn't have the altitude and airspeed to make it. They tried to land in an unpopulated and snowy field about 21 nautical miles short of the base, but the field, though it appeared mostly flat, had several berms and ditches that were three to six feet high, which is like everywhere in Afghanistan. There's like nowhere that doesn't have these giant berms or wadis or fields where there's just, uh, there's like no just purely flat terrain. The aircraft appeared to have touched down, but was destroyed in the attempted landing after hitting a smaller berm. Both pilots were killed. I'm sure that they probably then had a QRF from Fab Sharana go re- respond. So um, we once I was the ba- I was part of the backup crew to uh, a fallen angel or an aircraft that had crashed, where um, there was an F, uh, F an Air Force jet. I don't remember what model that had crashed in. A, no, I'm sorry, it was a helicopter. There was a helicopter. A Chinook, I think, had crashed in Afghanistan, and the uh, the site where it crashed was maybe sixty miles from uh, about sixty miles from where we were at. And so there was a closer uh, team that went out there and responded to it. And I was able to see some of the uh, ISR footage, and they were just patrolling around the aircraft, monitoring the scene until other help could arrive. This was in the winter in Afghanistan, snowing, freezing cold, and they were out there for a couple days. Uh, they were out there on the mountain for a couple days, staying with the gear until they could recover all the sensitive equipment and exfil all the injured personnel, injured and killed personnel. Um, and that's a tough mission too. So, you know, I've got to give some attention to the people who responded to that crash because if you think about it, the crew who um, responded to the incident here, right? So there's going to be a team probably of soldiers who responded to this crash, who went out to the scene. And what did they come across? What did they arrive at? They arrive at a plane crash with you know, scattered wreckage, including radios and sensitive equipment that needs to be recovered. They've got casualties. So they've got the bodies of these American personnel that they need to recover, which 
we don't know the condition condition of these uh, of these individuals, the soldiers. They could have been in pieces, frankly, right? And so they're going to be out there recovering, to doing a personnel recovery mission, um, and then they're going to be waiting for it to get exfilled from that. So, uh, and then they're going to figure out what to do with the wreckage. Probably, you know, strike it with another aircraft, blow it up with a bomb. Um, so, it is. A, a really horrible situation. Uh, there's a lot more to think about here than just the plane crash. Like I try to get into the mindset of what was going on in the aircraft. So every aircraft emergency has a checklist and pilots train again and again and again and again and again and again until you want to throw up from it on these checklist items. So they've probably rehearsed thousands of times on what to do if there's an engine out emergency. And they were... And I wonder, like, I can't, you know, speculate what one of them was the lieutenant colonel, probably a high ranking member of the command, maybe the CEO, maybe the EXO, something like that. And the other guy was a junior pilot getting qualified, uh, getting his qualification still. Maybe that was his first deployment. And they're up there and they would have been going over this stuff in training thousands and thousands of times. Then they get up there and they're experiencing a real emergency and they start going through their checklist items. And from what it sounds like, they go through the checklist items several times before the wrong engine. So there's a saying in aviation, at least in naval aviation, which are pubs are written in blood, right? Manuals are written in blood. That's because you learn something from every mishap. So I'm sure that there was a large investigation from the army air, uh, you know, commanders into figuring out why they weren't able to identify that this other engine was out. And now they'll come out with new procedures and maybe new equipment maybe like a camera pointing out the side or something like that, like a little, you know, pinhole camera out the side to look at the engines to help identify which engine was out, which engine was working so that this type of thing can never happen again. But they only know that that's a problem because it happened to these soldiers. So that is a, a huge um, bummer story. You know, that's, that's, that sucks. Um, when I think about the fact that they crashed and they could have saved themselves, you know, they could have the investigation says they probably would have been able to restart the other engine. Like that makes my skin crawl. That is insane. Oh my God. Wait a second. Wait a second. Hang on. Something's happening here. You guys. Peppy has donated $3. Did that really happen? Did Peppy donate? Are you out there? Are you listening? Did you donate $3? This has never happened on the show before. This is my first donation on our 100th upload. The first $3 donation. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't get anything on my YouTube. I can't believe it. Hang on. I got to, I got to sit with this for a second. A $3 donation. That means so much to me. Honestly. Wow. I can't, that is incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, we're out here doing this five days a week, making these videos, putting in the time that is so encouraging and so motivating that's my first donation. I need to frame this. I need to do something with this. Thank you. Thank you, Peppy, so much. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. All right. All right. Let's, uh, let's keep the con, but let's keep the content going. We're already 40 minutes into this episode. I don't, I never know where the time goes when we're doing these things. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Incredible. Incredible. So, um, just, I'm, I'm over the moon. Um, I, I have, so, so that story from that Air Force crew, that's, uh, that's, that's uh, a sad story. And we have another one too, okay? So we, we have another one, unfortunately. Um, this one just popped up on my radar today. So I want to get through these, and we've got a couple more. The, uh, the National Guard had a helo, in, a helo crash. There was a National Guard helo crash um, this week in New York, in upstate New York, where I'm actually from, um, from upstate New York. And uh, three National Guardsmen were killed, unfortunately. So let's cover this story really quick for you guys. Um, and we'll figure out what's going on here. Now, I get a little, uh, a little more um, uh, spun up with a helicopter crash. I've lost friends in helicopter crashes. I know people listening in the chat have as well. Um, I know Justin and I were in the same place at the same time when we found out we had lost some friends in a helicopter crash. And that was really hard. Uh, I still think about that all the time. Uh, it happened, um, the anniversary was recently. I think about it all the time. Um, so remains of three national guardsmen killed in New York helicopter crash recovered. The U S army will lead the investigation into a helicopter crash that killed three national guard members on a training exercise. The authorities said Thursday after the remains of the troops were recovered from the rural upstate New York crash site. And there's a photo here on the screen of 
the crash site. And it looks like uh, if if this, if what you're looking at here is the Hilo after it crashed there and you're listening on the podcast, there's nothing left. It's a UH-60 Blackhawk. It's a, you know, personnel. The mission of that Hilo is to move personnel and supplies. And they were from uh, maybe a, a medical unit because they're described as a medical evacuation helicopter. But there's, it's, it's, a pan, it's a pancake. The wreckage is a pancake. The only piece of the aircraft I can make out is the stabilator. And everything else is just, it's, there's nothing left. This is one of the worst air, aircraft helo wreckage sites I've ever seen in my life. I mean, the, the whole thing is, is flattened. So um, Army Aviation Safety Investigators were expected on scene by Friday morning, which is, uh, uh, so that would be today. That's like today. This, this is an ongoing, this is a breaking story. So the UH-60 Blackhawk medical evacuation helicopter crashed in a farmer's field in rural Menden, south of Rochester. This is like where I live, like Rochester's in the same county where I grew up. Around 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, there were no survivors, which unfortunately with helicopter crashes, helicopter crashes have an extraordinarily high fatality rate. Um, there are, there are not many helicopter crashes where either, either there's no survivors or everyone survived. There's very few helicopter crashes in, in my, in my memory and my knowledge of this where, um, if the helicopter crash is bad enough where it caused fatalities, probably everyone died. And if the helicopter crash was like a hard landing or, or a controlled, you know, impact or something like that, uh, maybe everyone has a chance to survive. But helicopter crashes have a very high fatality rate, especially in the military. I mean, civilian life, a high profile one this year was Kobe Bryant helicopter crash, right? So it's, I, I always hated getting in helicopters. Um, and I worked on helicopters. And I hated working on helicopters. I mean, the the pressure of, you know, thinking that everything you do on a helicopter or on an aircraft could cause, could put the crew's life at risk. Every inspection you do, every piece of maintenance you do, the crew that and the passengers in that helicopter trust, you know, their life, their lives with your work. And I, I never took that lightly. And I don't think anyone does. Well, maybe some people do. They gun deck their inspections or whatever, armchair, CDI. But um, if you know what I'm talking about, then you know. I don't, I don't have time to probably explain the whole thing right now. But um, it's, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily high-risk helicopter operations. Uh, and there's very little, um, you know, ability to, you know, glide in a helicopter or have a controlled landing if you have lost power or lost tail rotor or something like that. Helicopters are extraordinarily dangerous. So... Witnesses who called 911 reported hearing the sounds of an engine sputtering and said the helicopter was flying very low. Photos from the scene showed the wreckage in flames on a snow-covered field, so it burnt up. It sounds like an en- maybe an engine failure in that case, but th- there are two engines on 60s, and so I'm not sure what happened here. Like I said, there will be a whole investigation, and it might take years to find out what happened. On Thursday, first responders and residents lined roadways as the victims were driven from the crash site to the Monroe County Medical Examiner's Office, escorted by police and fire vehicles. The victims' names were not released. Community members came out of their homes. They stood on the side of the road with flags, saluting, said Fowler, who retired from the National Guard in May after 30 years. It was just a very touching and honorable time for this unfortunate event. Yeah, that's sad. That's sad. Um, it's This is breaking news. Um, this happened, you know, this evening. Uh in, in, uh, in New York. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know what, what else to say about it. It's, um, it's very dangerous. Military aviation is very dangerous and it's very brave of so many people to get into those helicopters and get on those aircraft every day, thousands of times, thousands of flight hours. We've seen people with who've been in crashes, they get back in, they keep flying. Pilots who've been in crashes keep flying. Justin says, I always appreciated the maintenance on the bridge and the care and knowledge everyone put into it and shared my second deployment, not so much. Oh, wow, really? Your second deployment, not so much on the, on the bottom Richard, I'm guessing. Um, that's crazy. Uh, that's unfortunate. On the bridge, on that deployment, we were a very tight-knit crew um, and we had just lost a crew too, right? So I think the fact that we had just lost a crew on another aircraft on another ship, um, right at the beginning of our deployment, kind of put a, a different 
sense of responsibility into all of us who were on that deployment, you know? Um, it was, it really uh, changed my outlook as a junior, brand new aviation maintainer to then lose a crew like that, um, who we knew the craziness surrounding that situation um, really changed my, pers- it affected my whole life from that point forward on how I looked at things that I did in the military. Ayo Nixo, what's up? Welcome to the chat. Thanks for being here. Um, thank you to everybody in the chat who's been watching this video. It's Friday out here. It's the last episode of the week, and we've got a couple more stories to cover. So we just covered a couple aviation mishaps. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I, I know, you know, I know a little bit about aviation because of my background in the Navy. So I feel like I, we could talk about that all day. Um, here's one thing I wanted to ask you guys. I have a question for the viewers, which is, um, I've been talking about this for a while and I've been thinking about doing it. What if, what, what would you guys think? Is there any interest out there in me dedicating a week of shows to my Navy career? And talking about what my career was like and what I did in the Navy and the journey from joining the Navy to getting out of the Navy um, and everything in between, deployments, all that stuff. Is that something you guys would be interested in knowing about me or, uh, would, or, or no, Max, shut up, tell us the news. Let me know in the comments uh, below and I will be reading those and responding to them. So um, out of the Air Force, we talked about this a couple weeks ago and here we go. It's happening. This is a game changer, the headline says. Air Force to allow longer braids, ponytails, bangs for women to think we don't have headaches every day anymore. Women with their pulled back hair and tight buns, uncomfortable in hats. Uh, So this is a game changer. Let's see, we've got a female Air Force uh, staff sergeant braiding her hair. Women across the Air Force and Space Force, which is so funny, (laughs) rejoiced on Thursday to the news that the service will allow them to wear their hair longer than before, thereby loosening constraints that many airmen said had resulted in migraines, hair damage, and hair loss. Very true. Very true. The new grooming standards allow Air Force and Space Force women to wear their hair in up to two braids or a single ponytail with bulk not exceeding the width of their head and length, not extending below the horizontal line running between the top of each sleeve inseam at the underarm through the shoulder blades. That's a mouthful. According to the press release, in addition, women's bangs may now touch their eyebrows, but not cover their eyes. This is going to, I'm going to go to the uh, exchange, the army air force exchange services after this and see if I see any, uh, there's going to be a line out the door of the, of the salon probably. And there's going to be a bunch of air force personnel with different hairstyles. I bet. I love this. I love this. You guys remember the episode a couple weeks ago. What I said was every decision that the military makes is made with lethality in mind. Is it making the military a more lethal or less lethal force, right? Is refusing to adjust grooming standards making us more or less lethal? And I told you why I do like grooming standards and I told you why I don't like grooming standards. And this is one that I think we should have a lot of flexibility on is hairstyles. Why are we punishing so many people with, you know, damaging their, especially women, damaging their, you know, their hair to just be in one particular, very specific hairstyle? I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think that it makes the military more or less lethal. I remember a big change in the Navy was they started letting women wear their buns out of the back of their ball cap, like through the hole in the back of the ball cap, which I was like, yeah, that's a no brainer. Why have we always been, why have we always been doing that? So we are way out of date on a lot of these hair regs. So it's uh, it's about time. The branch's top enlisted airman, Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, said the charges reflect the diversity, the changes reflect the diversity of the Air Force. Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, has been named on our show a lot over her use of social media to address issues. I've been a little critical of her with that, but in this, I've got to give her a bravo Zulu. Bravo Zulu, Chief Master Sergeant Bass, on this change. Not all women have the same type of hair, and these standards need to reflect the diverse force that we are. Bass on her Facebook page. I'm happy we were able to accelerate this change for our airmen and proud to say that we are only just getting started. This was probably right after her uh, Farmville update and her Animal Crossing updates. Uh, I learned that she planted carrots last week. No, I'm just kidding. She is on social media a lot addressing issues directly, uh, and I have mixed feelings on that. If you guys go back to a couple episodes ago from a couple weeks ago, you guys know the uh, the deal with that. So here is a picture of that sums it up very easily of what's okay and what's not okay. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of master sergeants, E7s in the Air Force walking around with this on like an index card, just holding it up and comparing uh, uniform infraction, uniform infraction, uniform infraction. Good, you're good. So get ready for that, Air Force. The changes go into effect in February upon publication of the new standards in Air Force Instruction 36, 
The Air Force wrote, the Space Force will adhere to the same standards until it develops its own policy. The Space Force is now something that we use in a regular sentence and refer to a real thing. I feel like I just now realized that. I feel like just now at this moment, even though I've talked about the Space Force many times on the show, and only just now hit me that now we're saying Space Force is like, a, like yeah, Space Force updated its hair regs. Good for the Space Force. Way to, way to lead the charge. Basketball, the ch- change is long overdue, and several commenters on Bass' Facebook page seem to agree. I have irreversible hair loss from pulling my hair so tight, wrote one person responding to Bass's post. I cut it all off years ago in an effort to prevent spreading. Jeez. And that's so true for so many women. I wish the military would cover hair transplants to correct this. Extremely insecure and self-conscious about it. Yet yeah, a VA should cover it too. The VA should cover it too. Thinking of all my sisters in arms through the years who would have had such an easier time with these standards, and I'm getting choked up. Another person who credited Bass and former Secretary of the Air Force, Barbara Barrett, for the change. Chief, thank you. Thanks to Secretary Barrett. This is dot, dot, dot. Thank you. Despite the damage caused by the old policy, Bass' post was filled with jubilation over the change. Oh, my God. What's happening? Hang on. My internet just went bonkers. Um... This is a game changer. Thank you, a third person wrote, to think we don't have headaches in every day anymore. I can grow my hair out again. She went to town to allow us to wear it down. That's a good rhyme. Uh, in a press release, the Air Force said airmen must still adhere to safety procedures when operating machinery or moving parts. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm sure they still have to wear hairnets for cooking too. The Air Force decided to make the changes in November 2020 uniform board meeting. In making their decision, the board consulted a crowdsourcing. What is happening? Crowdsourcing campaign that had been conducted among airmen for input on the standards, a panel of 19 diverse airmen and feedback from the Air Force's women's initiative team. To any male airmen who may be reading this, no, don't expect changes to the Air Force beer. Ah, ah, they got you at the end there. To any male airmen reading this, don't expect changes to the beard policy. Ah, oh, bummer. Just when you think progress is being made. Just when you think we're close. Unlike with women's hair standards, there are no known health or hair loss issues associated with current male grooming standard compliances. Except for people who have a um, beard, uh, what is it called? Not ingrown hairs. Um, there's a word for it. If you guys have been in the military, you know, some people get really, really bad irritation with their skin when they shave and then they get no shave chits. So there is that, but they already have no shave chits for that. Those standards include permitting beards for medical exceptions, such as shaving waivers or for approved religious accommodations. However, many airmen with waivers have reported negative impacts to their career because of them. How about this as a negative impact to their career? I'll tell you, I'll tell you a negative impact to your career having a beard waiver, not being able to go anywhere without getting stopped a hundred freaking times. That's one negative impact to it. I think that with beard waivers and, and hair waivers and all this stuff, one thing they could do is make it somehow easier for people to get around on base and go get lunch without getting stopped every 15 freaking seconds with somebody going, do you have your no-shave chip? Do you have your no-shave chip? That's annoying as hell. All right, let me catch up on the chat really quick. So uh, definitely you're a great storyteller. Uh, okay, so everyone seems like they're interested in the in the career stuff. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. We'll do that. I'll let you guys know when that's going to go down. Um, R- Ram says, very interesting. Migraines, Justin says migraines would make anyone less lethal. hundred percent. Yeah. Migraines. Let's look. Okay. So let's just think about this for two seconds. Migraines are a service connected uh, illness. So the Navy's, the military's already paying people out for getting migraines after they get out of the service. If that's caused, if the VA and the military just want to cut costs on that, all they would have to do is just let people wear their hair down. Um, Kilo says, hello, everyone. What's up, Kilo? Welcome to the chat. It's nice to have you here. Thank you for tuning in. Rachel says, this is great. Thank you very much. Justin says, uh, what are grooming standards in a zero-gravity environment? That's a great question. Scotty has a good idea, which is making everybody wear skull caps. Um, in space, it would be tough. To, I, I mean, imagine shaving in space. Like, is that How do they do it? We have to look up an astronaut video of how they shave in space because you always see astronauts with uh, clean shaves. Kilo says, any word if other branch is going to follow suit? Nope, no word. This is straight out of the, uh, this is straight out of the uh, Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, who I'm sure tweeted it right directly to her social media accounts. Scotty says, uh, excuse me, shipmate, where is your no-shave chit? Yep. So here's, the be- here's a great thing. When you're in the Navy, here's my favorite part about being in the Navy. You're walking down the street and somebody goes, shipmate. Oh, man. Love that. So shipmate is what one sailor calls another sailor who's stationed on the ship with them. But in reality, shipmate is how you let somebody know you're about to hem them up. It is the most backhanded compliment. It is a slap in the face. It is a negative word. And there was a whole push 
to make shipmate a positive word a few years ago. There's no, there's no recovering shipmate. Shipmate's a lost word. Shipmate is a, is a negative term. Um, some people say shipwreck. Hey, shipwreck. Hey, shipwreck. What's with that? No shave. Uh, but if you're, here's a social experiment for anybody military. You just walk down on base and you go somewhere with a bunch of people and you yell shipmate. Whoever turns around is something's, something's wrong with them. Okay. If you're, if you just yell shipmate, whoever turns and looks at you is jacked up. Okay. They've got a, a yellow backpack on with only one strap. They've got their hair too long. They didn't shave that morning. They got white earbuds in, whatever it is. Um, they're definitely doing something wrong. Their American flag patch is on the wrong side, whatever it is. Just yell shipmate. You'll find out pretty quick who's not doing the right thing. It's that easy. That's how easy it is. Um, yeah, so you hear a shipmate and you just know something's about to go down. Something not good's about to go down. Um, okay, so we're on to our last story today of the day. The time flew by. I don't even know what's going on. It is uh, the Army is using future weapons again which uh, maybe they should start with a branch like the Air Force who has a little bit higher ASVAB score to get in and maybe let them use the tech first. But I actually like this one. I like this one. This makes sense. This is future tech that makes sense. It's straight out of the Iron Man program out of SOCOM. They're cherry-picking different pieces of equipment to use. I actually really like this. Let's talk about what the uh, Army is doing with the Iron Man, what the Army is doing with the Iron Man operation. So the Army is testing a piece of SOCOM's Iron Man suit for its next generation squad weapon. And I actually like this. I actually like this. I can, I can get behind this. The Army is currently experimenting with a piece of technology as part of its next gen squad weapon effort designed to enhance a soldier's aim by stabilizing a weapon's barrel against unnecessary or unintended movement. Tasking Purpose is learned. This is from Tasking Purpose. Sorry if I hurt anybody feeling, sorry if I hurt anybody's feelings in the chat. It's all in good fun. Um, the so-called AIM Control Enhancer, or the ACE, originally developed as part of U.S. Special Operations Command's now abandoned Iron Man suit effort, which, by the way, if you guys didn't know, they, they shut all that stuff down. Originally developed as part of U.S. Special Operations Command's now abandoned Iron Man suit effort, is currently undergoing evaluation for possible use with the next-gen squad weapon, according to Peter Rowland, spokesman for the Army's program's executive office. Um, the Army continues to manage multiple research development Test and evaluation efforts, including ACE, as part of its mission to increase soldiers' lethality. That's what Roland told Task and Purpose in a statement, noting that projects like ACE are separate from the service's current prototyping efforts for uh, next-gen squad weapons. As a matter of policy, details of ongoing evaluations are not available for public release. And you see it on the screen here. If you guys are on the podcast, what we're looking at here looks like a, um, a texturized grip on the bottom of the barrel near the front end of a shorty barrel. And it is, it looks like it would go where your forward hand grip would go. Um, the system, which attaches to the Picatinny's rail, that's a standard feature of most military rifles, that's your accessory attachment rail, can best be described as mechanical isolator for a soldier's support hand, according to Matt Engel, the Wyoming-based electrical engineer who originally developed the system before picking, piquing the U.S. military's interest at a government-sponsored innovation summit in Austin, Texas back in 2016. So I've read this article. Uh, I'm going to describe to you guys what it does. So if you guys can imagine, grab something, um, even just your cell phone, okay? For, I, I bet for most people out there, even your cell phone would be an effective tool to practice this with. Take it, I'll use my mouse, and just hold it out in front of you like this, okay? Give it a minute, give it two minutes, see how long until your arm gets tired. It's going to happen pretty quick. Now, a rifle weighs more than your cell phone, okay? So it's going to happen even quicker. You're out there all day, potentially. I mean, they do this even in boot camp, right? They do this even in boot camp. You hold your rifle out in front of you like this, maybe like this, maybe overhead. It's light for a second, but it gets heavy pretty quick. And what happens to your muscles when they start to get fatigued? They start to shake, right? They're starving for nutrients. They're starting to shake. They need oxygen. They need blood. They need, they need, they need strength, right? They're trying to, you know, create some energy or they're, they're just totally going into failure and they start basically shaking. Um, so what happens when that happens to your hand? Okay. If this is your hand on the front end of your rifle and it's shaking, what do you think that's going to do to your aim? It's going to affect your aim, right? So what does this thing do? This attachment to your Piccadilly system, your rail system isolates the vibrations and does not translate them to the barrel. So as your hand shakes, it moves, it oscillates on the bottom there and eliminates the shake from getting to the front end of the rifle. So your aim will be on, even if your hand is shaking. So even if your hand starts to get fatigued after all day or just staring down at a target for a really long time, uh, you will be able to continue to maintain 
a good sight picture on your target, um, regardless of if your hand is starting to get fatigued. According to the original Small Business Innovation Research contract for ACE, the system is elegant in its simplicity. A user selects a target or a direction, and the system holds the weapon in the proper orientation. This effort seeks to merely correct for the shaking of the weapon that is not controllable by the user. It, and here's a little uh, video of it in action. So you can see on this video, if you listen on the podcast, exactly what I was describing. The bottom hand is shaking, but it's absorbing those vibrations and allowing the barrel to stay effectively, not 100% still, but it is not wiggling around, is not moving off target. Because if you think about this, okay, well, who cares? It's still wiggling a little bit. Okay, but 100 meters away, your target's 100 meters away and you're aiming at it and you only have a second to get a sight picture in and shoot at it. So in that moment, if you shake just a little bit, just a tiny little bit, and then you fire, 100 meters later, it's going to be off by a lot, right? Just trigonometry. So it can prevent the barrel from moving in ways I don't want it to. Angle told task and purpose. Basically, you grab the device and there's a mechanical linkage system that keeps the barrel still in certain ways. It doesn't automatically aim, but the whole thing is closer to image stabilization in the camera lens. As your hand shakes, the uh, system moves to keep the barrel still. Great idea. This actually makes sense. The small arm stabilization system was one of several subsystems that the Pentagon flagged as mature enough for further mature maturation and testing. When the Talos program shut down in 2019 after failing to yield an integrated suit of armor that SOCOM leaders had originally promised. I think ultimately, uh, you know, what the Talos program struggled with, I think, is you've got a very complex system that leads to a lot of points of failure including power. So you needed power. You needed uh, uh, rugged, ruggedization and reliability. And here's the thing. If you, let's say you give it to SF guys, if they don't think they can just use it easily, they're just not going to take it anyway. Like they're just going to go, okay, thank you. And put it in their locker and then not use it. So uh, you have a lot, you have to tackle a lot of issues to get a new piece of gear actually like reliable enough and where um, the points of failure are not extreme enough or the, co- the, uh, the, the consequences of failure are not extreme enough that people will actually go use the thing. And in this case, in this instance, if you, if, if you're, if you're, uh, your, your stabilization system here fails, what do you have? You just have a front grip. So even if this system fails, you just have a front grip. So you're good. Like this thing can break and you're still using your gun as opposed to if this thing breaks and your weapon is down for, you know, hard down or something like that. Um, so that's it for that story. Let me catch up on the, uh, and I like it. So, so overall I like it. I think that's a good idea. I totally get why that's relevant. It makes a lot of sense to me. I think people will like using it. Uh, it seems like a set it and forget it type of thing. And so good to go. It doesn't complicate the system too much. So, um, Kilo says, oh yeah. So, whoa, whoa, sorry, sorry. Uh, you know, no hard feelings out to the army out there. Uh, I love the army. I've spent many, many, many months uh, working with the army. Scotty says that's the SOCOM Talos program. I worked on it for two years. Yep, Scotty. So you know a little bit about that. You can maybe you can enlighten us on what some of the um, reasons why it shut down are. Kilo says a lot of money for basic rifle marksmanship skills. Most targets don't present themselves very long. Uh, yeah, you know, but I, I, I think, uh, I think with other attachment, like other attachments that are coming like other, you know, aim enhance. So what are they doing? They're tr- the army, and we've covered this on the show before, the army seems to be going in the direction of trying to make it easier for soldiers to, to have target acquisition. That's what they're doing. They're not so focused on changing the weapon, getting a new weapon. They're really, they've really expressed a focus on helping with target acquisition and accuracy. So I think that seems to be the direction the army's going. I think we'll see more of that. Rolo, what's up, dude? Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. The camera and the mic are good. Yeah, I appreciate you tuning into the show. Scotty says, it was riddled with issues. Uh, it caused a major redesign within my first week of the program. Oh, I caused a major redesign. Good job. Good job identifying problems. That's funny. Uh, it would take a really long time for them to sort that stuff out. Uh, Rolo, we can link up anytime you want. Uh, we can talk about it. Justin says, it's like an escalator. It breaks and you have stairs. Exactly. That's exactly right. An escalator breaks. It's just stairs. Thank you, Mitch Hedberg for that one. And, uh, that great line. Love Mitch Hedberg. Miss him. Rest in peace, Mitch Hedberg. Um, so this one, you know, your front, your front grip uh, vibration absorber breaks. You just have a front grip. It's good to go. It's too easy. Kilo says maybe something on a machine gun would be beneficial. Yes. Yeah, so, so if you could imagine that on a, 
um, on a machine gun, it would be uh, probably pretty helpful. You know, uh, you, you're still going to get kick um, and all that, but you probably uh, would be able to, you know, get that second sight picture a lot faster. Uh, Rolo, yep, you can message me on Instagram on my Scuttlebutt Show account, and uh, we'll talk soon. Um, okay, so um, thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I can't believe I got a donation, $3 donation. That's my first one. I'm so happy. I'm going to go tell everybody about that. I'm, I'm stoked. I'm pumped. Uh, you know, we're going to keep doing this. So here's what I'll do. Maybe next week we'll do uh, just, you know, cover my, my career. I've been meaning to do it. I need, I need that content up. You know, people ask a lot about what I did. I'd like to be able to point them to uh, some episodes. Maybe next week we'll do uh, kind of the story of my military life. You guys have expressed some interest in wanting to know it. Um, the donation, I don't know. Peppy, how did you donate? <laughs> it should be here on YouTube, like a donate now or support button at the bottom of the video. I don't know what you guys see on your screens, um, but man, that just meant the world to me. Don't don't donate now. I'm about to sign off. So uh, if you want to donate, if you want to support the channel, right now is the best ways to do it are through the Patreon uh, link in the description down below. Second month of being a patron, you get a free t-shirt as an elite patron. Uh, so check out the benefits over there. Um, I appreciate you guys tuning in. Also, you can get shirts at scuttlebuttshow.com. I appreciate you guys. Uh, it's in the description. Thank you, Rachel. It's in the description. Thank you. I appreciate that. Heads up. Uh, I'm like a, a, a uh, Jacob says, I sent the book. Let me know when it gets. To- oh, Jacob. Awesome. So check this out, guys. Thanks for jumping on the show here. I'm glad I got you before uh, I signed out. So Jacob is a uh, uh, author, military. Are you retired? Did you get out? Military officer uh, who wrote a book. He's going to send it to me. I'm going to read it and then we're going to do a review and then we're going to do an episode. So it's going to be awesome. Um, Kilo says, like hearing from other branches, different perspective. Uh, And Rachel, yes, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, So guys, we're going to sign out. There's big things coming. There are huge things coming in the show soon. Um, EAS as a captain. Got it. EAS as a captain. So I can't wait to read your book. I'm really excited. I'm going to try to finish Ashley's War uh, this upcoming week and get my review out of that. And then I'm, I'm stoked. So, um, oh yeah, Jacob, drop the, uh, drop the link to the book in the description of this video, uh, so people can get it and, um, or just drop the title. It's available on Amazon and, uh, and I'm going to be doing a whole episode on it soon. So, all right, guys, we're going to sign out this week. Uh, it's Friday here. It's our last episode of the week. We'll be back Sunday at 1800, 1800 Pacific standard time, Sunday through Thursday is when we do the show. I look forward to talking to you guys then. I am, uh, I'm going to try, you guys are going to hear the end of the show today. You guys are going to hear the end of the show today and I am going to get to my sign out right now. So I appreciate you guys being here. I look forward to talking to you soon and I am out for now.